Good morning, Gold Avenue Church. This is Pastor Jalisa, and this morning we're continuing our journey digging into the gospel tool through our sermon series, Go and Make Disciples. This is a series about understanding the depth and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's about growing up as disciples of Jesus who are equipped to share the gospel and to make more disciples. Last week, Pastor Gina shared with us a message from the book of Exodus, reminding us of the role for which God created his people. She talked about our relationship with God and the purposes that he made us for. We were reminded of how when when God's people had been held captive in Egypt, God had said, let my people go so that they might worship me. And we were invited to come back to the heart of worship to consider true worship. And this morning, we're looking at the consequence of failing to maintain our relationship with God and the role that we were made to play. We'll be reading from 1 Kings 12, 25 to 33, which is a story about the first king of the divided kingdom of Israel, which I'll say more about after we read. And we'll also be reading from Thought Unit 13 of the Gospel Tool. But before we read, let's pray. God in heaven, this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is alive, that it's active, that it's always true, and that it's always relevant. And so, Lord, as we enter into your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would do the work of making your word to come alive. Lord, would you equip and anoint the preaching of this word, the hearing of this word, and the response to this word. And Lord, just as we just sang, we pray that you would tune our hearts to sing your grace, and that though we're prone to wander, Lord, we pray that you would take our hearts and seal them and that you would bind our wandering hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So first I'm going to read Thought Unit 13 from the Gospel Tool. Failure to honor relationship and role. Rather than reflect the light of God's presence and goodness to the nations around them, These people display the stubborn tenacity of sin. Rejecting God as their king, they are unable to have a transformative effect on the world. Instead, they reflect the brokenness and rebellion of the world in ever-increasing measure. And then from 1 Kings 12, and I'll be reading verses 25 to 33. Then Jeroboam fortified Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. From there he went up and built up Peniel. Jeroboam thought to himself, The kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me. And they will return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. 
he said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. Jeroboam built shrines on high places and appointed priests from all sorts of people, even though they were not Levites. He instituted a festival on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the festival held in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. This he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel, he also installed priests at the high places he had made. On the fifteenth day of the eighth month, a month of his own choosing, he offered sacrifices on the altar he had built at Bethel. So he instituted the festival for the Israelites and went up to the altar to make offerings. Thanks be to God for his word. Have you ever encountered a story, maybe you you read it or you watched it, where it's almost painful to keep paying attention. It just feels like there's one thing after another that goes wrong and the story just gets worse and worse. I had this recently when I was watching a documentary about the hunting down and the prosecuting of Nazi war criminals following World War II. The documentary started out with concentration camp survivors sharing stories of specific Nazis who haunted their memories. These are Nazis that had escaped. Their memories included gas chamber engineers who tore children from mothers, doctors who performed horrifying experiments, and prison guards who beat elderly prisoners to death. Many of these survivors who told their stories had become part of an organization that was created for the specific purpose of hunting down and bringing Nazis to justice. Now, the story started at such a low point. I mean, this is one of the saddest stories of history. And my hope as I was watching, even my expectation was that at some point in the story, there would be justice, that there would be redemption, something something good. But as the minutes rolled by, the story just got worse. So many criminals had gotten away with their crimes. So few survivors ever saw justice. And the darkness and the depravity of this moment in history was overwhelming. One particular survivor showed or shared about how striking it was to him that many Nazis wore iron crosses on their uniforms. I looked it up. And the Iron Cross is a historical military honor. It goes back to the Prussians. And it was given to soldiers who had acted bravely. Now, that Iron Cross had little to do with Jesus or Christianity, but the connection for that prisoner was impossible to miss. The cross that represented Jesus was somehow connected to these people and to their crimes. Another survivor 
noted that a Nazi official that he had taken prisoner in uniform had worn a patch on that uniform that read Gott mit uns, which means God is with us. Still later, a group of Jewish authorities had discovered that European priests, after the war, were not only sheltering and hiding these war criminals that had escaped, but they were re-baptizing them for the purpose of creating baptism records with new names, so that these Nazis could create false identification papers that would allow them to escape to other countries. At this point, I was sick to my stomach. How was it possible that people who wore the cross of Christ, people who were convinced that God was on their side and for their cause, and people who even held positions of authority within the church, could do such a horrifying job of representing God? These are extreme stories, but they're not new ones. Our text for this morning comes a long time after God's people had been delivered from Egypt. This is generations after the people had settled into the promised land. This land of Canaan had been divided into 12 tribes. You think about how our country is divided into states. Canaan was divided into 12 tribes And each tribe was named after one of the sons of Jacob. Now for centuries, these 12 tribes had been united under the rule of prophets, judges, and eventually kings. When the first king, Saul, had failed to maintain his relationship with God and the role that he'd asked for, God had taken that throne from Saul and he gave it to David. There were times when David did well and times when David didn't do so well. And this reign made clear that things went well when David operated as God had commanded him to. But things did not go well when David rejected God as king. When David died, his son Solomon took over the throne. In Solomon's early years as king, he walked with the Lord. The Lord blessed Solomon to build the temple. He blessed Solomon with tremendous wisdom that literally brought the kings of the earth to his doorstep, hungry to learn. Solomon was sharing the wisdom of God with all the nations of the world. But as time went on, Solomon took for himself foreign wives. His wives led him into idol, pagan worship. Solomon, too, rejected God as king and as the only God, and he set up idols for the people to worship. And as a result, the nation began to suffer. And so, God sent a prophet to one of Solomon's officials, a young, highly respected man named Jeroboam, who was beginning to rebel against Solomon and his toxic leadership. This prophet told Jeroboam that because of Solomon's sins, God was going to take much of his kingdom away. 
But because God had promised David that his line would last forever, God was going to leave Solomon and his son Rehoboam one small piece of the kingdom, including the city of Jerusalem and the temple that he had built. But the rest of the nation, 10 out of 12 tribes, would be stripped from Solomon and given to Jeroboam. God promised Jeroboam that if he walked with God, if he did as God commanded, God would be with Jeroboam. And from Jeroboam, God would build a dynasty, a family line that would be blessed and that would last as long as David's. Soon after, ten tribes rebelled against Solomon's son Rehoboam. The twelve tribes were split into two nations of ten and two. Jeroboam was crowned king over the ten tribes of the kingdom of Israel, and following Solomon's death, Rehoboam is left with the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Jeroboam had literally been handed the keys to the kingdom. Now this should be such an exciting and a beautiful story. But as we read on, the story is painful to hear. Jeroboam's first act as king is to build himself a new capital city because he doesn't have Jerusalem. And he sets up residence in that city. Next, he begins to build up a place called Peniel, which means to contend with God. This is the very place where Jacob wrestled with God. But as Jeroboam was building, he forgot one very important detail. So he gets to thinking. Literally says, the text says, he says unto his own heart. Uh Uh-oh. My people are supposed to go to Jerusalem to worship God. But Jerusalem is in Judah, and Jerusalem is Rehoboam's. What if my people go to Jerusalem to worship and they end up returning to Rehoboam? What if my people come home and kill me? Out of his fear and his desire to control the kingdom and the people that God had given him, Jeroboam does the unthinkable. He commits the same crime that had cost Solomon ten tribes. He sets up two golden calves, two idols. Jeroboam gathers the people together and he starts to sweet talk them. Listen, guys, Jerusalem is just really far away. And I wanted worship to be convenient and comfortable for you. So I've set up these really beautiful golden calves for you instead. There's one in Bethel and there's one in Dan. So they're easy to access. And then Jeroboam borrows a line from Aaron, who had set up those first golden calf in the desert long ago. Here, Israel... Jeroboam cries out, Here are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. In one sentence, Jeroboam had literally stripped his people of their identity, and he stole God's glory and gave it to a pair 
of golden calves. The next thing the text says is interesting. It says that this thing became a sin. The people began to worship those calves at Bethel and Dan. And in doing so, the sins of Jeroboam produced the sins of the people of God. And Jeroboam's sins had just begun. He continued to shape the worship of his nation around his purposes and preferences rather than God's standards. He set up high places, places of worship, wherever he wanted to. He rejected God's standards of the sacred holiness of priests, and he put anyone and everyone in positions of authority. He even rescheduled the religious holiday calendar around what worked best for him. How is it even possible that someone who had been personally invited by God to rule and to reign, to have the kingdom and to be like him, had instead chosen to be like the world? As the saying goes, the rear view is always 360 degrees. Hundreds of years later, it's so easy for us to see the errors of King Jeroboam. But fellow humans, you and I, we are not immune from the failures of Jeroboam. And our enemy can be so subtle and sneaky in getting us to rebel and to reject God as the rightful king. Jeroboam had feared rejection. So he built these calves in order to to keep and control the people. He didn't want to lose his power. He didn't want to lose what he'd been given. And when we fear rejection, and when we fear loss, losing something that we value, oh, it can be so tempting to turn to manipulation. We lash out. We shut down and withhold ourselves or we turn to deception. We do and we say extraordinary things when we want to get our way, when we want to keep what is ours or when we want to stay in control. Instead of seeking the wisdom of the Lord, Jeroboam took advice from his own sinful heart. It literally said he counseled of himself And he took advice from those around him who told him what he wanted to hear. Whether we're considering a career change, a church home, a relationship, a purchase, a move, our own development, or even just what we do with our time, it can be so much easier to do what we want rather than to slow down and ask God or anyone else for that matter. It's so much more comfortable for all of us to take advice from those who tell us what we want to hear rather than to seek and then listen to the advice of those who think like God, those who might tell us things that we don't want to hear. Jeroboam exchanged true worship 
of the one true God for the worship of idols. This is like a a twisting of the image of God. He threw out God's standards and commands for worship, and instead he chose to do what was convenient and comfortable. He chose to please man and to please himself rather than to please God. How often aren't we tempted to go with what's convenient or comfortable rather than what's holy? Strong is the temptation to skip Sabbath for chores, to spend our mornings in our beds or at the gym rather than in the word or in prayer, to honor the cravings of our flesh rather than the commands of God, to make unholy compromises about the word of God rather than entering into holy confrontation. To hear about the kingdom of God for an hour or two on Sunday, but to build the kingdoms of self all week long. What have we sacrificed on the altar of convenience and comfort? Rather than allowing and even encouraging his people to gather as one before the Lord in Jerusalem, as God had called them to. Jeroboam set up several temples and high places so that the people could be divided in their worship for the sake of convenience. How often has convenience and comfort come at the expense of the unity of God's people? Jeroboam threw out the standards of holiness that God had set for priests, for leaders, And he allowed anyone and everyone to serve in authority. Now this means that even though the tribe of Levi was part of his kingdom, all of those Levite priests, those wise spiritual leaders, they left and they went to Rehoboam. And so rather than put wise, God-fearing people who are in pursuit of holiness into positions of authority, Jeroboam was willing to put anyone who pleased the people on the pulpits of Israel. Oh, friends, the church was not made to please people. It was made to please God. The church wasn't made to reflect the fall of man. The church was made to reflect and enact the redemption of God. If we look around, so many in our world do not know the goodness of our God. They do not know or live in the truth of the gospel. And so it all begs the question, what has been allowed into our churches for the sake of comfort at the expense of holiness, holiness that would bear witness of God's goodness? I think one of the scariest, saddest parts of this whole story is that the people buy it. Hook, line, and sinker, they start showing up at Bethel and Dan and bowing at those cows like nothing has ever happened. They are completely content to worship idols rather than God. Friends, do we, as individuals, as a church family, and as the body of Christ, do we reflect our God 
or do we reflect our world? Because the reality is that if we fail to reflect God to the world, the world loses an opportunity to know God. David and Solomon both had moments of tremendous success. They had seasons of leadership where God's people shone brightly to the world around them. But they both also had seasons of crippling failure. And if we slow down and really think about it, it's a miracle that the story didn't just end with Solomon. We walk through it quickly earlier on in the sermon, but can you imagine the level of grace and mercy that it took for God to keep the line of David on throne in Jerusalem? After Solomon, the man who had built his temple, turned around and sprinkled the whole land with temples to pagan idols. What did it take for God to go to Jeroboam and say, listen, David's line has failed, but my work is not done. Partner with me and together we will bless the world beyond your wildest dreams. And I'm going to bless you. Sin is tenacious, but our God is even more tenacious. Despite his failure, God never broke the promises that he made to David. And God never gave up his grand plan to redeem the whole world. The story doesn't end with Jeroboam, and neither does God's plan of redemption. For hundreds of years, the thrones of Israel and Judah were passed down from one son to the next. And to the faithful came favor and blessing, but to the rebellious came brokenness, defeat, and eventually exile. And yet, the work of God never ceased. He never stopped inviting his people to be in relationship with him and to partner with him in his work of relationship with and redemption for the world. God's whole plan is born out of love. And the love of our God never fails. As John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. And as Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We are not stuck in sin and death. Jesus came to conquer sin and death. He came to redeem the world once and for all. He crushed the powers of Satan that have continually reduced people to the caged kingdoms of themselves in the world rather than the glorious kingdom of God. Jesus lived an intimate relationship with God the Father. He was and he is the perfect reflection of the triune God to this world. Jesus modeled truth and grace in perfect, nearly impossible harmony. 
He chose the hard road of holiness, and yet he drew his strength from the joy of the Lord, and through him, all around him were transformed. Jesus, the king of kings, did what the kings of Israel could not do. And because of what he did, we are invited, empowered, and equipped to do as he did. Friends, we are sinful. We're fallen human beings. And yet, our sins have been paid. By his wounds, we are healed. And by his blood, we are set free from fear, from comparison, from jealousy, from anger, from all these things. And by his Holy Spirit, we are empowered to live the lives for which he created us and for which he sent Jesus. We are not people of rejection, fear, jealousy, control, rage, or even mere comfort. We are invited to walk with the king of the heavens and the earth, to be in intimate relationship with him, and to share his mind, to enact his authority upon this earth, and to reflect his love, his power, and his goodness to the broken and hurting world all around us. And all that God asks in return is that we honor him as king. So I want to leave us all with these questions to consider as we are each in pursuit of growing up as disciples. I've got three questions. The first one is, does our personal approach to worship reflect our king's desire as to how he wants to be worshipped? Or does our approach to worship reflect our own comfort or convenience? Question number two. Do our rhythms of life, that means the ways that we choose to spend our time, our gifts, and our energy, do those rhythms reflect the kingdom of God, the world around us, or the kingdom of ourselves. And then finally, are there ways in which God would have each one of us to reflect him to others around us today or within this week? And as we close on those questions, I want to pray for us. God, we thank you for the truth of your word, even when it might not be an easy word to hear or to absorb. As we look back on the history of your people, God, we thank you that you never broke your promises and that your love never fails. We thank you that everything you said, everything that you planned has and will come to pass. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you that through you all things are possible. God, we want to be more Christ-like. We want to live the lives that we were created for. 
And so as we we each reflect on these questions, Lord, I pray that you would draw near to each one of us. If there are areas that we need to repent of, God, we ask that you would surface those things. That you would remind us of your grace, God, and we thank you that you are faithful to forgive. And if there needs to be some rearranging, some shifting, some changing, God, we ask that you would purify us. That you would change our hearts and that you would set us apart to be holy. God, help us to be a people who reflect you. Help us to be a people who walk with you. Help us to be those who bring about your redemption and reflect your redemption to the brokenness of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.